We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and it brings truth and life. So every week we read it, we meditate on it, we study it. And right now, this fall, we're studying Christ and the covenants from the Old Testament. So far, we looked at the covenant with Adam, God made with him. Uh, it's a covenant of works that Adam failed to keep and plunged this world into sin and misery. Then we studied the covenant of Noah. It's a covenant of preservation that God promised to preserve all of creation so that we would have a good and stable home so that he could redeem a people for himself. Last week, we began studying the covenant with Abraham. It's a covenant of promise. We saw that God promised to give Abraham a great home and make him a great nation. He promised to to give him a great big family of people that know God and love him and worship him. Well, after God made those promises in chapters 13 or 14, we see Abraham struggle to live in this new land that God called him to. And we know that God did not give him a child yet. So Abraham was fearful and afraid. And that's the context that we come to here in Genesis 15. What we're going to see is that God meets Abram in his fear and his doubt. And he reassures him that God's word will prevail. So let's read Genesis 15. We're going to read the whole chapter. Starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, 
our football teams lose in Oktoberfest ends. But not the word of the Lord. It stands forever. Let's listen to it. My good friend Ricky Jones is the pastor of River Oaks Presbyterian Church here in South Tulsa. Uh, before he was the pastor there, he was an RUF campus minister at the uh, Mississippi State University. And while he was there, he decided that he wanted to go into church planning. So he started applying for different church planning jobs all around the country. Uh, he applied for one here in Tulsa. And so they brought him out for a visit. And the recruiter uh, brought him out here, showed him the great, wonderful land flowing with milk and honey that is Tulsa, Oklahoma, that we all know and love. And he knew Ricky liked to play golf, so he took Ricky to Cedar Ridge Country Club. And there on the golf course, he made a promise to him. He said, if you come to Tulsa to plant this church, then you will get not only to live in this great city, and not only to be a part of this great church plant, but you will get a free membership to Cedar, Cedar Ridge Country Club. So Ricky and his wife prayed about it, they thought about it. They said, yes, God is calling us in Tulsa to plant this church. So they moved their family here to plant that church. And 15 years later, the church is growing and thriving and doing well. And Ricky never got that golf club membership. In fact, I'm not sure he's ever played a single round at Cedar Ridge Country Club since then. That promise went unfulfilled. Amy, did you guys promise me a membership? No? It was Southern Hills, wasn't it? No, it wasn't Southern Hills? We all live with unfulfilled promises, don't we? The world makes promises to us. Our family makes promises to us. God makes promises to us. But deep in our hearts, we doubt that those promises are going to be fulfilled. We, our, our parents promise us great things. They promise us uh, love and joy and happiness. They promise that they will come in and check on us at night before we go to bed. But sometimes they forget and they don't keep those promises, do they? Our job offers us happiness, fulfillment, and joy. But sometimes it doesn't meet those expectations. Our spouse offers us faithful love and service all the days of our life. But there are days when they fall short. And they can't keep those promises. God offers us all these amazing promises in his word. But we struggle to see how they're going to be fulfilled. We struggle with fear and doubt. If that's you this morning, there's good news in the passage. God comes to Abram in a moment of fear and doubt. And he reassures him. That God will fulfill his promises. He gives Abraham a word of promise, a sign of promise, and a covenant of promise. And what I want you to see this morning is that we live our lives each and every day by faith, not in ourselves and not in this world, but in the God who who makes great promises and keeps those promises. In a God who is faithful, even in a world that is unfaithful. So let's look at those three things this morning. We're going to see the word of promise, the sign of promise, and the covenant of promise. First thing we see is God gives Abram a word of promise. So in Genesis 14, Abram is showed this land, right? He's he's a part of this land. And and all around him are kings and kingdoms that are fighting. There's conquerors, all this stuff. And the king of Sodom comes to Abram and says, hey, if you just side with me, I'm going to give you great wealth. And I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to protect you. And Abram says, no, 
I don't want it. I'm not going to take your land. I'm not going to take your money. I'm not going to take your protection. He trusted God. He trusted that God was going to provide. But he was also afraid that God was not going to fulfill those promises. So what does God do? God meets him in that fear. And we see this in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God met Abram in his fear, and he reassured him by giving him a word. And notice it says that there's a vision, but the emphasis is not on the vision. The emphasis is on God's word. When we struggle and when we doubt, we need God's word the same way that Abram needed it. Uh, At night, I always make promises to my kids that I will come and check on them before they go to sleep. And they always say, okay, dad, I promise you, but how do I know? How do I know you're going to keep your word? And I try to reassure them that I'm going to, that I'm going to keep my word, but sometimes I forget. When we, when we do bedtime, we also pray. And, and they say, you know, daddy, I want to, I want to pray to God, but, but he doesn't answer my prayers. How do I know when God's speaking to me? How do I know when I hear his voice? And I say, we go to his word and we listen to his word. And his word is the way that he speaks to us. So the Bible tells us there's two different ways that God speaks to us. One is through what we call general revelation. Psalm 19 and Romans 1 tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. That through all of creation, we can see God's goodness and his power. We can know that he exists. We can know his attributes. It's what we call general revelation. But the Bible also tells us that God speaks to us through special revelation. And that special revelation is in the Bible. It's in the word that we have recorded in scripture. It's here that God gives us direction for life. And he gives us everything we need to know for salvation. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit works by and with the word of God to teach us everything we need to know for life and godliness. Now we're studying the Old Testament. So some of, may, some of you may be like, okay, maybe the New Testament. But what about the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament reliable? Can I really trust it? And if you're reading through the Old Testament right now, you know there's a lot of, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in the Old Testament that's hard to believe. Well, Jesus believed that the Old Testament was reliable. Jesus trusted the Old Testament. He quoted it often. He believed in it. If it's good enough for him, then it's probably good enough for us, right? Peter tells us that that the Old Testament is sufficient. That it's inspired by God. Peter says that, that, that men wrote as God guided them. And men spoke as God guided them by the Holy Spirit. So even though the, these stories are filled with different writers of different backgrounds, different interests, even different personalities, what we believe is that by the Holy Spirit, God was guiding these men to write what needed to be wrote so that we could hear the word of the Lord whenever we need it. And whenever we're, uh, when we're, we're times of doubt, of times of fear, of times we need reassurance, what we need is God's word. Uh, my friend told me a story once about how his brother was offered the chance to buy a business. And it was a good business opportunity, but it was going to be kind of risky. He genuinely didn't know, should I buy the business? Should I not buy the business? I'm not sure. And so his brother 
came to him and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get in my prayer closet. And I'm going to stay in my prayer closet until I hear the word of the Lord tell me whether I should buy that business or not. And so my friend, he's a pastor, he's kind of cynical. He was like, okay, like, sure, that's not how God's going to speak to you, but go ahead, that's what you want to do. And so his brother goes in his prayer closet, he stays in there for a long time, he comes out, he goes to my friend, he says, okay, I know what I'm going to do. And my friend says, well, did you hear from the Lord? And, and his brother said, yeah. And he said, well, what did he say? And he said, the Lord said that if you buy the business, I'm going to be with you. And if you don't buy the business, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you no matter what. And my friend said, oh, that sounds exactly like God would, what God would say. Because that's exactly what it says in his word. Whenever you're fearful, whenever you're doubting, whenever you're struggling to believe the promises of God, go to his word, read it, meditate on it, learn it. Pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate in your heart and your mind what you need. And then believe him and trust him. He gives us a word of promise. The second thing he gives us is a sign of promise. You look in verse 4. It says this, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Have you ever gone outside you know, in the country or in the mountains or someplace where there's no uh, light, there's not a lot of lights around, and just seeing all the stars at night. Now, I grew up in the country in Coweta, Oklahoma. We lived about 10 miles outside of Coweta, which is not a city. <laughs> so we lived like, you know, 30 or 40 miles. You know, we lived 30 or 40 minutes from Tulsa. So we're pretty far out in the country. But I love going out on those clear summer nights and sitting on my back deck and just looking up the stars, seeing the sky just filled with stars. You can't count them. You can't number them. I don't even think science can count all the stars, right? I think scientists, they, they just go, yeah, there's, you know, 30 or 40 billion or whatever, right? They're just making an estimate. They can't even count all the stars. Now, imagine being Abram going out in the Middle East with no lights around and no cities around. Imagine all the stars that he saw. And God said, your offspring are going to be like numbers of the stars. Abraham's like, that's a great promise, God, but I don't have anybody. I don't have a son. I don't have, a, I don't have anybody to, to be the heir of my family. Like at this point, I'm old. I don't have a child. I don't understand how you're going to make this promise come true. And what God is doing with the stars is he is giving him a sign of his promise. He's giving him a visible assurance that God's promise is true. He's given him a visible assurance of an invisible word. What God is doing here is he is laying the foundation for what we call the signs of the covenant. Every covenant has signs. Right? The covenant with Adam in the garden had a sign. It was the tree of life. The covenant with Noah had a sign. It was the rainbow in the clouds. And, we're, and when we get to Genesis 17, we're going to see that the covenant with Abram has a sign as well. It's called circumcision. We're going to study that next week. It's a little teaser. Come back next week. If you want to know all about the signs, that's what we're going to talk about. But what God is doing in the signs, he's giving us a visible reminder, a visible assurance of an invisible promise. And God is already preparing Abram and us to receive that sign. What I want to focus in on this morning 
is not the sign, but just the way that God approaches doubters. Think about how kind and gracious that was of God to give Abram a sign. That God didn't squash him. He didn't destroy him. He didn't shake his finger at him and go, you just believe because I told you so. He gave him a sign. Now there's, when you're, when you're thinking about belief and unbelief, right, there's two different types. Okay? There is a, a sinful unbelief that rejects the promises of God. What did Satan say to Adam and Mark? He said, did God really say that you can't marriage Eat from every tree of He was rejecting God's promise. That's a sinful form of, of, of belief. It's an unbelief, right? That's, that's the, that, that kind of unbelief is the kind of belief that deconstructs the faith, that makes it cool to doubt, that makes it, that makes it okay just to reject God's word and to reject God's law and to try to do life on your own. And, and I think that... The deconstruction that we're seeing a lot in our culture and other people are talking about, I think some of that, some of that is a simple form of deconstruction. They're taking apart God's word. They're taking apart God's character. They're breaking down the foundation of our faith, not in a way to build it up on God's word, but in a way to build it up on their own word and their own thoughts and their culture. But there's also a healthy... Uh, a healthy form of, of unbelief, a healthy form of doubt, also a healthy form of doubt that comes not from unbelief, but from belief. You see, the reason why Abram was struggling right now is because he believed in God's promises. He believed that God was going to make him a great nation. He believed that God was going to give him a good home, but he didn't have those things. His doubt came not from unbelief, but from belief. And you see this actually through the Bible. You see several people like this. Mary. When angel came to her and said that she was going to have the child, and that child was going to be the savior, she said, "How how's this going to happen? I'm a virgin." Thomas, when he said, uh, I, "I can't believe unless I see Jesus' hand and his sides," it wasn't it wasn't unbelief that was driving her doubt. It was belief. It was belief that the Lord existed. It was belief that, that God could do something that was impossible. Job is another great example of this. You know, the book of Job is filled with Job's suffering. It tells, you know, 40 chapters of God allowing this man to suffer greatly. And the reason why it was so hard for Job is because he believed that God was almighty and all powerful. And so he's struggling with the fact that he's suffering on the one hand, but he's got a good, loving, all-powerful God on the other hand. And we can, we can struggle the same way. You could have doubts. You could, have, you, could have, you could struggle with assurance of your salvation. And it totally comes from belief. It comes from a place of, of wanting to believe and trust God. And, and in all honesty, Christians, myself included, are a mix of the sinful unbelief and true belief and faith in God. We're a mix of those things. Sometimes side by side, sometimes in the same day or at the same time. And so what do we do in those moments? We cry like we cried earlier. I believe. Help my unbelief. There's a story in Mark 9 where uh, they bring a demon-possessed boy to Jesus for him to heal. And Jesus says this. He says, how long has this been happening to him? And the father says, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire into the water. To destroy him. 
But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, held my unbelief. And Jesus healed the boy after that. That is the prayer of faith. If you're a Christian struggling with doubt, needing reassurance, come to the Lord and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me understand what you're doing with my children right now. Help me understand what you're doing with my work. Help me understand what you're doing with my spouse. Help me understand what you're doing with my singleness. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's a prayer that comes from faith. That's a prayer that God answers. He meets us in that unbelief and he reassures us that he loves us and he cares for us. He gives us a word of promise. He gives us a sign of promise. And lastly, he gives us a covenant of promise. Verse 7 says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God reassured him that he was going to possess the promised land just like he told him in Genesis 12 that we looked at last week. And I love Abraham's response, just like my kids do to me. Oh, Lord God, but how do I know? How do I know that I should possess it? How do I know that my spouse is going to love me forever till we die? How do I know that my job is going to provide for my family? How do I know that my health is going to hold up long enough for me to see my grandkids? How do I know? How does God respond? God responds by performing this covenant-making ceremony with Abram. So he tells Abram, I want you to take a heifer, a goat, a pigeon, a turtle dove, and cut them in half and lay them opposite each other. So imagine him taking these animals, cutting them in half, and putting one side of the animals over here in a line and the other side of the animals over here in a line. Okay, so he's basically making a, a row or a, an altar with these animals. Okay. So this may sound really bizarre to us because we don't do stuff like this nowadays, but, but we know from archaeology, this is actually very common in this culture. In the ancient Near East, this was a way of making a covenant with someone, or literally cutting a covenant is what the Bible says. A modern day example of this would be like in marriage, right? We have a, a wedding or a wedding ceremony, right? And in that wedding ceremony, uh, symbolically you have typically two sides of the aisle and you have an altar down the middle and the bride and the groom, they come down this altar. They walk down it symbolizing that these two sides of the family are coming together to become one. They come up to the front to the, to the priest. They make these vows to each other. They make promises. They make oaths. And the priest administers those. And then afterwards, what do they do? They go back and they sign a marriage certificate. And the priest signs the marriage certificate. And all that ceremony, right, is a covenant. It's, it's forming a bond between these two people. It's bringing two people together and creating one marriage. It's a covenant ceremony. Well, we have the same thing going on here. It's a covenant ceremony between God and Abram. And, and when, when God has cut those animals and laid them apart, what he's doing is he's saying, what they're doing is they're saying, okay, If I break this covenant, if I don't keep these promises, then may I be like these animals. May I be cut in half like these animals. They're promising that the curses are going to be carried out on on them. 
as it was these animals. So we actually have an example of this in the Bible in Jeremiah 34. Uh, God, God told Jeremiah, he said, I want you to go to my people and tell them. You told all these Hebrews that you're going to let them go. So they were keeping slaves. And the people made a covenant they were going to let the slaves go. So God came, to, but they, they let them go. But then they brought them back. And so God came to them and said, look, you, you let the slaves go. And then you brought them back. You broke my covenant. And it, and it actually says, um, you have not obeyed my command to free your brother's neighbors. So I'll make you like the calves that your leaders walk between. So when they made a covenant, they cut these calves in half and the leaders walked between them. And because they didn't keep that covenant, it was like they break the covenant. They broke the covenant. So God let Babylon come in and discipline them. So they knew. Abraham knew what was going on. They knew what was going on. They knew exactly what was happening. Abraham knew what was happening between he and God. So this is what he thought. He thought either I'm going to walk between the pieces or both God and I are going to walk between the pieces together. So he goes to sleep. While he's asleep, this dreadful, great darkness falls on him because this is, this is a big deal. This is a scary thing. He, he realizes that he is entering into a special relationship with the Lord of space, time, and dimension. He's afraid. And in that fear, God speaks to him and God prophesies and he says, look, this is what's going to happen. Your people are going to go to a land for 400 years. They're going to be slaves, but I'm going to deliver them out of it and they're going to have this land. You are going to die a good old age. So he prophesies. But then something shocking and amazing and totally unexpected happens. God doesn't ask Abram to walk between the pieces. Instead, a smoking pot and a fire walked between the pieces. The Lord walked between the pieces. Just the Lord. And when the Lord walked between the pieces, what he was saying to Abram and what he was saying to us is if I don't keep my promises, let me be cut in half like these animals. But not only that, Abram, if you don't keep your promises, I am going to be cut like these animals. I am walking through the, and making this covenant for me and for you. And what God did in that moment was he made a promise that he was going to suffer and die for the unfaithfulness of his people. He was putting salvation 100% on himself. And at that moment when he walked through those pieces, it wasn't just God the Father. We believe in a triune God. It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was present at that moment. And Jesus knew as he's walking through those pieces that one day, someday, he would be the one who was cut in half for the sins of God's people. And on the cross, he was cut off from the world and he was cut off from the Father for us. For our unbelief, for our rebellion, for our sin. What this is saying is salvation is totally, 100%, completely, utterly dependent on the Lord. There is no way 
you and I can save ourselves. There is nothing that we contribute to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Yet God himself saves us. He rescues us. He brings us to himself so that we can experience him and all of his goodness. The covenant of grace is a bond in blood that God gives to sinners like us. How do we receive it? Receive it the way Abraham did. Receive it by faith. It says in verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the promises of God. And it was his faith in God's promises that wiped his spiritual record clean, that filled his spiritual bank account, that brought him into a right relationship with God, and allow him to experience all the goodness and glory of God in a relationship with him, both now and into eternity. This is the first time in the Bible we see faith and justification brought together. But Paul tells us in the New Testament that all who have the faith of Abraham, all who believe God, are also made righteous. So when we come to God with our sin and our suffering and we confess that we need him to rescue us, we need him to save us, that we need him to save us from our unbelieving, cold, legalistic, pharisaical hearts, that he truly does save us. Not based on anything we've done, but based on his goodness and grace. And he blesses us with his presence and his power and his provision. By faith in God, He is our reward and our protector. Now I want to close with this. Notice that it doesn't say that Abram believed in God. It doesn't say that Abram believed in God. Isn't that interesting? There's a difference between believing that God exists and believing God. You see, James tells us that even the demons believe that God exists and they shudder. If you just believe that God exists, that is not true saving faith. That is a shuddering faith. That is a faith that will not save you. True saving faith is faith that believes in the promises of God. That that throws your whole weight, your whole trust, your whole life on Him. That gives Him everything. True saving faith looks like this. When we lived in Stillwater... I used to take my kids rock climbing at the Colvin Center because they had this like really cool rock wall indoors. And so they would go rock climbing and they would climb up and I would belay them at the bottom. And, and interestingly enough, getting up to the top wasn't the hard part. Like for them, you know, they're light and they're stride and they're quick. That, you know, physically that was easy. They just mentally had to get over the hurdle of being up there really high. So it just took a little tough love for that. Come on, get up there. You can do it, right? But when they got to the top, that's when it got really hard. Because to come down the wall, this is what you had to do. You're going to take your hands off the wall, leave your feet there, kind of up against the wall, take your hands off the wall, and hold on to the rope. And put all your weight into the harness. And as you put all your weight into the harness, you had to trust that I was going to be there, that I was going to keep my promise to lower you down on the belay. They had to trust me. They had to trust my promise of saving. Saving faith in Jesus looks like that. It looks like taking your hand off the wall, 
looks like taking your hands off of your life. It looks like giving up control and grabbing the rope, which is Jesus, and resting in him. And letting your heavenly Father rescue you from, from whatever sin and suffering that you have. It looks like letting go totally and completely of your life. That's what Abram had to do. He had to let go. And it cost him his family. It cost him his land. Uh, it may have cost him Isaac and Sarah. We don't really know. But later on, it looks like Isaac and Sarah depart and go the other way. And Abram's by himself. But God promised to be his great reward. He promised to be his shield and his protector. He was to Abram the day that he died. When I, when I became a Christian, I had to let go of my identity. I had to let go of wanting to be a, a baseball player and a partier and a professional writer and all these great things. I had to let go of all those identities and give my identity to Jesus. And as a 40-year-old father, yesterday, I had to give up control. I had to give up the, the, the desire to control my wife and my kids and my life more in my day, under my own sovereign power, I have lived by faith. What do you need to let go? Don't hold back. Let go. God gave you everything in his son. He asks you to give up everything. In return, he promises to give you himself. There was one time he told the disciples, he told one disciple, he said, you've got to leave everything and follow me. And this guy went away. And then Peter looked at him and said, what about us? We gave up everything. And Jesus said, you'll have a hundredfold in this life and the next. To everyone who gives up their life for Jesus, God promises a hundredfold in this life and the next. And that rewards him. A truer, fuller, deeper life in him. That's how it happens when you become a Christian. And that's how you happen as you grow in Christian. And that's how it happens throughout the rest of your life. We always live by faith in the God who keeps his promises. So let's go to God and let's pray that the Holy Spirit will help us do that today.